Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Today we have Sarah Deshawn on to talk about her story and a book that she wrote as a way of working through her becoming a new Sarah version of Sarah. And she's actually a parent of a child with a catastrophic medical diagnosis. So this is a new angle that I'm going for in some of my interviews. And so I'm so excited to hear about your unfortunate story. And we want to make everybody clear that your daughter is still alive. And uh, which I forgot to say on on my uh, podcast with my dad is that my brother actually is still alive, my oldest brother. If you didn't listen to that interview, it's a couple of interviews back with my dad, because I, in fact, come from a family with a child who had a catastrophic medical diagnosis, which was my older brother. Anyway, today we're on to talk with Sarah. And I like you like I don't usually find out much about these interviews ahead of time. So I thought we were going to hear more about how she, like the identity loss and rebuilding identity around what, you know, because when you have a kid with a catastrophic medical diagnosis, everybody in the, in your family, the, the, your life changes forever. But she said her stuff, hers changed when, when she had her son, her daughter and I uh, actually, the very first podcast interview in for my podcast was a mother around motherhood and losing her identity and it's more common than we think and or that we want to think about and and maybe also in in a society where women have opportunity to get educated and have all these other options then you know in anyway i'm not don't let me go on a monologue about motherhood motherhood and freedom of choice so thank you Sarah for coming on it is absolutely my pleasure thank you Julie for the invitation and I'm excited to have people who might be able to hear my story so to to begin with uh where this story started um my husband and I decided when we were early in our romance that uh, we loved adventure, wanted to see the world. He was from Belgium, I'm from Minnesota, and we decided that we wanted to travel the world together. So after we were married, that's what we did. And we went to Asia three times and we went to Europe to see his family and we traveled around the United States and we couldn't get enough Mm. of being in a foreign culture, foreign place, seeing new people. 
1997, when our first daughter was born, she was born into a family where we decided we were going to see the world. So we took our tiny daughter and traveled the world with her and wanted her to grow up also in an environment filled with love and kindness and an understanding of who all the people are in the world and that we're all different and unique and all have places in this world. In uh, the year 2000, my husband who worked for Northwest Airlines at the time when it existed, um, had an opportunity to move to the Pacific region headquarters in Tokyo and to run the Pacific division for Northwest Airlines. So you can imagine for a couple who absolutely love to travel around the world, this was an exciting proposition. Not only could our two and a half year old at that time daughter live in a foreign culture, but I was eight months pregnant. And so we made the decision that and oh, thought wow, was, to get on the plane. <laughs> we, yeah. Isn't there, isn't there a time when you can't get on a plane? When you're pregnant? We waited until the last day because <laughs> I, I had been teaching. I was an educator was my background. I had been teaching French and Spanish. Mm. And so I wanted to get through as much of the school year as I possibly could. I love teaching my students. And so I taught to the last day that we possibly could before we had to move. We got on an airplane with our two and a half year old and off we went to Japan. And so it was truly supposed to be the thrill of a lifetime. Our daughter was going to have a Japanese birth certificate when she was born, and we would learn Japanese and have this incredible experience in a culture that we were thrilled to learn about. So all of that changed two weeks after we landed. We found out just before we left that maybe perhaps there might be something in the lower abdomen of the fetus. And I was at that point five and a half months pregnant and they said, well, maybe not. They weren't sure. And Fred and I were healthy. My husband and I were healthy and our two and a half year old was healthy and everyone in the family was healthy. And so, and we were gonna move to Japan. So how could there possibly be anything wrong? And since they said, maybe there's nothing, we moved to Tokyo. Once we got there, we were connected to the OBGYN that saw most expatriate foreign parents, mothers who were gonna give birth in Japan. And that doctor did an ultrasound and said, hmm, I can't see you. There is potential that there's something wrong with the lower abdomen of your baby. And I don't know what, and I can't tell, but I deliver babies at the American style hospital and you have to go to a level three trauma hospital and no one speaks any English there and no partner can come into the operating room with you. There's no special, wonderful, warm labor and delivery space like I had had with my now two and a half year old. And um, maybe there was something wrong with the baby. Mm. So a month after we had been living there, my water broke. We, I told my husband goodbye. I got in a taxi. I went far, far away from our new home. We had only been in Tokyo long enough to get over jet lag at that point. Mm -hmm. Left my two and a half year old behind, knowing the next time I saw them, I would have a baby. 
and they would be meeting their new sister and daughter. And I would have done this on my own. So my water broke. I was two days in the hospital and it was a extremely foreign and scary experience. And that was just the water breaking. They, they waited two days to induce labor because I hadn't gone into labor. Finally, they took me into what looked like a 1960s operating room with whitewashed concrete walls and the big fluorescent light overhead and the cold operating table and the crinkly pillow behind my head. And uh, there was a uh, there were six doctors in a row standing quietly, all watching me give birth, with one standing next to my feet, uh, my side. Um, telling me in English, he did speak some English, how that I had to push. The baby was breached. The cord was wrapped around oh. her neck and they whisk, and I'm alone and they whisk the baby away. I don't see her. I don't kiss her. I don't touch her. I have nothing to do with my beautiful new daughter that's just born hmm. and uh, no husband nearby. And they give me a telephone so that I can call Fred. And I, it's 2000, I have no mobile phone. There aren't cell phones, there was nothing. The, the phone that they gave me was one from the nursing station, they brought it over and I had to call my husband. A doctor came in while I was picking up the phone and told me that our daughter was fine, but she had one small thing wrong and it was called imperforate anus. A-I-A, and I'd never heard of, of course, anything like that. And so I called my husband and I told him that the baby was born, that there was one small problem. The doctor said it would be fixed, that she'd be fine, and that this was done. We were finally finished with this unbelievable, horrible experience. So he did come to the hospital at that point, and we went to meet our daughter, and she wasn't just in any nursery like you would see the kind with the plate glass window and you see them wrapped in pink or blue behind the, the and you look into the nursery. We walked down a long hallway. We put on Japanese slippers. We put on um, uh, full uh, protective gear in order to see our baby and went behind a door that had to be opened from the inside and were led into what is the neonatal intensive care unit with 15 babies around the wall. And I couldn't figure out which one was our baby. And, and in fact, as I tell this story, I picture myself there and my heart is racing. That's how real this still feels to me. Still trauma, and, trauma yes. response. <laughs> so we, they, the doctor pointed where she was. We ran over to her best and that she had a little pink hat on and she was swaddled, but with octopus-like tubes and wires and things running from outside the bassinet with machines hooked up to her. And I could tell immediately that something was wrong. And that something was more than a little something, something more than a little something. And I, the first sign. You don't go to neonatal care right. if right. it's a little something. That's exactly right. And so I, immediately thought she was the most beautiful baby I had ever seen in the whole planet, because hopefully we all do that, or at least in my experience with my two children. But 
um, they, she had a little pink hat on and I looked under it and she was missing her right ear. And I decided that is an indication that this isn't just something small. And clearly that had nothing to do with imperfect anus. And um, it wasn't until, so I nursed the baby. They told us it was time to leave the hospital, leave the neonatal intensive care unit. I went back to my room in the hospital. My husband was expected to leave immediately. So I was alone again. And in the middle of the night, the doctor who had told me that our baby had imperfect anus came into my hospital room, woke me up, was handing me what looked like sheets of plastic that turned out they were x-rays and said, there is something terribly wrong with your baby. Your husband needs to come by seven o'clock in the morning and we will meet you and speak with you about what's wrong. And it was almost like I was having in in a sleep a nightmare because I had just given birth. Right. I had well, you I was waited a, till the morning for that news. Right. <laughs> so my husband came to the hospital and we sat in a very stark room with a whiteboard at the front of the room. And it was um, three medical professionals sitting across the table, the two of us on the other side. I, it hadn't even been 24 hours since I'd given birth. And on the whiteboard, the doctor, again, who had come into the operating room, drew two pictures. And on the left side, he drew what any of us would recognize as the digestive system from our biology 101 class in high school. And then on the right side of the board, he drew a big circle inside what would have been her lower abdomen. And he said, what's missing in your daughter is her bladder, her bowel, and her uterus. And they're there, but they're all twisted into one channel. And he went on to explain all of the things that that potentially meant he labeled it. So this is the catastrophic medical diagnosis that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. And what Lily has is something called cloacal malformation or cloacal anomalies. And what that means is that your bladder and your bowel and your uterus are fused as one, if you will. So they look like what's called a cloaca. And all of us start in the uterus as teeny tiny fetuses and have a cloaca. And then as you grow and mature um, as a fetus, there is an enzyme that comes through and separates those three organs. And in Lily's case, it didn't happen. And this mm -hmm. happens in one and 5,000 births. So it is not something that is one in a million. There are multiple babies wow. that have this. It's rare, but it's not unheard of. Correct. Rare. Correct. And so the... Um, but one in so 5,000, you said? One in 5,000. That's actually not, that's actually sort of a larger number. It's, they consider it to be a rare disease, uh, because of the complexity that can happen as a result. Every baby has a different formation of 
the, the missing or uh, uncoordinated bladder, ball, and uterus. It also happens in boy babies. Every baby with this diagnosis. Correct. Has, has a, a different... Correct. It is presentation of it. it. Very different and unique in each of the babies. And so we went down a path of her having to have an immediate surgery within hours of that presentation because the the these babies don't have an an anus. They do not have a way for stool to exit their body. So the toxic fluid is building up inside of them and they will die within hours if they don't have a way for the stool to exit. Mm -hmm. In Lily's case also, the bladder was completely misformed. And so urine didn't have a way to exit her body either. <sighs> and so the surgery that is performed within 12 hours, 24 hours. Of yeah, because babies, babies need those things to happen. Yes, they once, do. Once they're born, it really, they know how to do that. Yes, their bodies have to do that. Like all of our bodies have to do that. And that surgery was then performed on her to create a colostomy, if people have heard of that, and a vaginostomy. And that was a long, so colostomy is a bag stuck on a part of your colon that they bring from the inside to the outside. Her colon exists, her small intestine is there, her stomach is there, all of those things are there. It's simply the process of exiting from your body that's the problem getting the waste out of the body is the problem so what this first colostomy surgery does is bring the top of the colon out to the surface of the skin so waste exits through your colon as it normally would but because she doesn't have a hole at the bottom this hole then is created in her lower abdomen and you put a bag, which is called a colostomy bag and collects the stool and you change that bag. It covers up this piece of, uh, it's called a stoma and it covers up a piece of that colon. And so you go to the bathroom through a bag in the side of your belly and it works and you're fine. And instantly you can go to the bathroom, not the way of anyone else, not the way certainly your mother would want you to go to the bathroom, but it works. And, and what you didn't they... need diapers. <laughs> you are correct. You are correct. And, and same thing because the urine, the way it exited the body, there was another little hole, not so small, in her further down in um, her pelvis that went into the small bladder that she had. She had one. It just didn't function properly, nor was it connected to the outside with a ureter and a urethra and all those good things that are necessary to go to the bathroom. And so they put a tube that was kind of the size of a pencil, meaning in diameter, it was that large sticking out of her belly. And it was a long tube that connected to a bag that connect collected urine. So when we saw our baby, about 24 hours after she was born, she had these two enormous holes in her so that she could go to the bathroom. Wait, so this is what you saw. This is what these all these tubes were when you went in. They had done the surgery even before. No, they've consent. 
No, <laughs> good point. Uh, no, we when we saw her the first time, it was heart monitors and it was every kind of tube, a nut tube in the sense of going inside her body, but every single way in which you can monitor a newborn's mm -hmm. body to see what before they knew really all the problems that were there. Oh. This was a way to make sure that she was breathing, that she could survive, that her heart was working, that her lungs were working, those kinds of things were functioning. That's what was happening when we saw her hours after she was born. The next time was when she'd had the surgery and now could go to the bathroom because she couldn't before when she was born. So, so you went, you saw your baby, they took your baby away because they could see that there was something seriously wrong and hooked her up to all that, those monitors. And then they got you in the next morning to talk about there's these real serious problems and she needs immediate surgery. And then she had immediate surgery. And then you got your baby with the coloscopy. What do you call it again? Colostomy, like colon. Colostomy. colostomy. And then what is the the urine? Vagin the urine is called a vaginostomy. Vaginostomy, okay. Uh, vesicostomy, sorry, vesicostomy. Vesicostomy, okay. Yeah, because if it's a boy, then they're not going right. to. Vesicostomy okay. is the tube that takes the urine out. Vesicostomy. So all of a sudden, your world has imploded. Correct. And you're yes. in a foreign country. Correct. And you've just arrived at a foreign country. You didn't Correct. necessarily have a support system. And and your husband has a brand new job that he's supposed to be showing up for. And you have a baby that needs intensive care. And a two and a half year old. And still a two and a half year old. And you don't have a support system. And your two and a half year old can't just like go off to school all day no and and you are that is a hundred percent description of where we were at that moment and so the shock and the disbelief and I didn't take even one minute to recover from giving birth unlike the previous baby and you gave birth a breech birth induced labor induced labor is seriously not fun. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh exactly. And so, and did you know the cord was around the neck while you were giving birth also? No. They no. found that out later. As, as they pulled her out, he could see, the doctor could see that the cord was around the neck. And so he cut the cord, took it off of her neck, and she cried. I mean, we knew almost, I knew my baby was breathing. I could see her come out of my body but I had no idea beyond a visual of five seconds <laughs> to see that she was uh, a baby. That had well, a, li a live birth baby. A live birth. Yeah. Perfect. So what happened after that was a constant for years state of trauma, of moving from one surgery to the next, of desperation to find the best doctors who could do the surgical procedures that were necessary to make it so that our baby could go to the bathroom like everyone else or as close as possible to like everyone else and to give her the very 
best life possible. That is what happened in terms of identity, if you will. All I could think about day and night was what can I do as a mother to get the very best health care for my baby so she has the best chance in this world? I would do anything. And ultimately, I did do everything I possibly could. And my husband as well, of course, did the same. But as you mentioned before, we had to have an income so we could have health care, so we could figure out how to manage this incredibly complicated situation and give our two-and-a-half-year-old the very best life possible also. We were stuck in a situation where there was no good way out, and I saw it as my responsibility to to look at, take care of, manage every single possible situation from every angle possible to give our daughter the best life possible and to save our family. Lily's life was in danger multiple times throughout this process. So I saw it as a way to save her life. I saw it was my responsibility to do so. And it was my responsibility to keep our family and save us as well. Mm -hmm. um, so just <clears throat> for people who these are just kind of words that you're hearing. The thing about, and I worked with families with kids with catastrophic medical diagnoses for five years as a medical social worker. So I saw a lot of these families who were became like forever caregivers with kids in wheel, their wheelchairs from cerebral palsy and stuff. And the the difference between being a parent who has gives birth and has a child that's healthy and their quality of life is normal and the expectation for independence is the world is your oyster. These parents, all of a sudden, that is gone. And so therefore, then who do you become? Because you're not the parent who's going to just like send your kid off on play dates the same way or send your kid off to like a summer camp the same way. It's like, or, you know, or like wait for your grandkids the same way because those, those events may or may not ever be possible. And so therefore, you, you have this huge identity loss where you're not that parent that you were expecting to be. And then who did you become? So you said every day you worried, you know, that it not worried. You were like traumatized because you were literally working to keep your, your daughter alive. And, you know, each, each, parenting thing is different but I kind of know a little bit about that because my older brother was supposed to, they, my parents had four funerals planned for him before he was 10 years old and so those that in that kind of family where it's literally life or death then you become a different kind of parent so what what kind of and at the same time you have this other daughter and so you want 
you want both your daughter with the complex medical problems and your other daughter to have as much normalcy as possible. And so it's like juggling impossible odds. And you, be, I, I guess you become a magician or something. So uh, the way in which I describe it, although magician is a good word, is that I, I went into looking at the world through two lenses. Mm. One of the lenses, in all honesty, was that we loved Japan. We wanted our daughters to have the adventure of a lifetime. And I say daughters, both of them, and we as a family. So part of our life and maybe the relief and the happiness that we found was because we could have goodness by learning about a new place. We traveled in Japan, we traveled throughout Asia, we did everything we could to enjoy life and try and do what we expected of the experience to raise our daughters in Japan. We stayed seven years from the time Lily was born, mm. we were that committed. So that was one lens of life. And the other one was Lily had medical issues every single day. So that colostomy bag had to be changed multiple times a day. The pee bag, as we lovingly referred to it, had to be emptied multiple times a day. It was complicated to pick up a baby, to nurse the, our baby, to put her to sleep without worrying that the tube would come out or the bag would pop off or something else would happen. The good part of managing her, because your listeners may be thinking, how could this family possibly travel, right. was that the the two issues that were taken care of immediately that surgery on day one lily could have lived her entire life like that people do have yeah. colostomy bags. a lot of adults have kids have them forever correct and in the case of lily immediately what the doctors told us was this can be solved your daughter can have as close to full and wonderful life as anyone else, but you will have a lot of surgeries in your future. And this takes every ounce of your energy to pull it off. Why is that? The doctors are doing the surgery. Because, good point. Because in our case, we tried, we looked into having this surgery in Japan. But ultimately, there's one surgical procedure that these um, babies that are born with cloacal malformation have to have. It is a complete reconstruction of the bladder and the bowel and to look carefully at the uterus and what needs to happen in the case of a girl. And that surgery is the single most complicated surgical procedure that can be done that's non-life threatening. You have to have the very best surgeons in the world. At the time that Lily was born, there were three in the United States, and that was it. 
There are other doctors who've done this surgery. There are other doctors who I'm sure could do this surgery, but there are three in the world who are experts. And of course, we wanted the very, very best for our daughter. If there's nothing else that you hear in my voice, it's that I will do anything on the planet to save my daughter's life and to give her the best possible advantage. So we searched the world. We found these three doctors. They were in various places in the United States. We called, we're living in Tokyo. It costs $3 a minute to call anywhere in the United yeah, States. It's before cell phones, right? It's before cell phones. It's and the WhatsApp. Of the night. It's the worst possible thing. But my husband got on the phone, called this a miracle, as you mentioned earlier, doctor, uh, who um, was able to pick up the phone. And he was one of the three who could do this reconstructive surgery. And those three doctors had worked together. So they knew each other. They knew how to do this procedure. And what the doctor you needed to have was a doctor who was a pediatric surgeon and pediatric urologist because it's so complicated. So they had to have a, a double specialization in order to even be considered to do this surgery. And there was a very delicate part of the surgery that had to happen that only these three surgeons really knew how to do. So we flew our family from Tokyo when Lily was eight months old to Los Angeles. We moved into the Ronald McDonald House in Los Angeles, which mm -hmm. is a whole nother piece of this story. I had given quarters and dollars and money anytime I passed that little red box at the front of McDonald's when you order and put money in the Ronald McDonald House Fund. I never thought that would be something that would be a part of my life. And how lucky we are that Ronald McDonald Houses exist because paying for a, house, a hotel room for two months Three months would have been, of course, prohibitive. And so Ronald McDonald Houses help you with that. So since we had come so far from Tokyo to Los Angeles, we had the gift of being able to stay there. And Lily then did have that major reconstructive surgery. It's 12 hours in her <laughs> case. So we were the first, this is the year 2000. It, we're the first ones in that waiting room and we're the last ones to leave the waiting room as you watch parents and babies come and go and come and go in a pediatric hospital and um, you sit there waiting. Finally, when the baby is done, you see the doctor. She's again in the intensive care unit and you wait and wonder and hope. And we had this unbelievable surgeon who is a family friend to this day, Dr. Donald Shaw, who's in Los Angeles. And he is the person who performed this surgery on her and is to this day considered an expert on helping these children who have cloacal anomalies, cloacal malformation. So we were incredibly lucky that we found him. He is a kind and gentle and wonderful person. And, and 2000 is before you could like easily find things on the internet too. Correct. You there had to like really work different ways, like a lot of telephone calls. And then they tell you to call this person and that person tells you to call this person. And then 
you know, because that's how I was as a medical social worker is like, I would like get this list, I would go through about 10 people until I found the actual person who could do whatever the family needed. Yeah, you are exactly right. It was one it's, of, it's not a Google search. It is, there was no Google, or at least not access to us in Tokyo, Japan in 2000. Yeah. So I didn't have a cell phone. I had I had nothing. And the, the we had just gotten email addresses before we left for uh, the for Tokyo from from the from Minnesota. But no one had nobody knew what an email or how to use it. I mean, we think now 23 years later, that's completely crazy, but that's how it was. And we were in a foreign country. So then what happened is that we went, that was her sur second surgery. Then she had um, five more surgeries during the seven years that we lived in Japan. And they were to do various things. Two of them were to create an ear. If anyone has ever, on, watch something like that happen. It also is magical in how a prosthetic ear can be made on the side of a person's head that looks identical to your other ear. There mm -hmm. is an amazing surgeon, Dr. Reinich, also at in Los Angeles who performed that surgery and he is world renowned for doing that surgical procedure on and pediatrics and children. So that happened when she was three and that was two surgeries. Lily had a, a thumb that needed to be operated on. So that happened in Los Angeles. So we would go back and forth and back and forth. And that's why I say the part about trying to live a life in Tokyo. Both girls went to the American school in Japan and we're lucky enough to be able, in Lily's case, to go to the school because, of course, you had to be potty trained to go to when you're three to preschool. There was the most amazing director of that school who was a very dear friend of mine who said, let's give it a try, Sarah. Lily will come to our school. At that point, she didn't have the tube in her belly anymore, so she peed in a diaper through a hole in her belly that had not been solved yet, that problem. And um, we hired a young woman from Minnesota who came so that the mom, me, didn't have to show up at school three times a day to help our daughter go to the bathroom and to have her diaper changed. And the director made it work and welcomed us with open arms so that Lily could go to school, that Emma, our older daughter, could have an amazing experience at school. So the girls made friends and the girls were welcomed into this amazing international community with 35 countries represented at their school and had that the great fortune of being able to do that in addition to all of the medical things we had to do. I would plan all year long for a surgery to happen in the summer. We would leave the moment school finished, as I did when I was pregnant and tried to leave at the last minute from my students that I enjoyed teaching. We would do the same with the girls. They'd go to school all year. The end of May, we would pack up our life. We would move to, to Los Angeles. 
we would have a surgery. We would spend the summer in Minnesota recovering from surgery. We would go back to Los Angeles at the end of the summer and go back to Tokyo for the first day of school. And sometimes Lily looked a little worse for wear when she came back with stitches all over wherever it was that she had had surgery, but she made it to school so we could provide the best environment and learning experience and friendships and life for her. But the trauma that caused on me, because never was there a day that went by that either I wasn't medically taking care of her, medically worrying about her, trying to make sure that she could go to school, and then preparing every summer for surgeries. That's what life was like. So rather than making the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and planning sleepovers, you, and again, still, it's a lot of long distance telephone calls, a time difference, even in the same city, if you live in the same city, just coordinating services for a child with a lot of different needs is, you know, a full-time job can be. Now, well, let me just ask you um, one of the, a question because there's a statistic like 87% of families with kids with catastrophic medical conditions divorce. So how did you manage to stay married and manage the family stress, the extra stress that comes up in these kind of family situations. So during those seven years in Tokyo, we relied on each other, Fred and I. There was no other way to make life happen except that sort of a, a tag team is the way in which I would say we would wake up in the morning he would go, we talk about life, he'd go off to work and he had a huge job. There are 13 countries that he managed for, the, for Northwest all over Asia. And I would get up and I would take care of the girls at the beginning of our time in Japan. I didn't have, I didn't work. I did at the end. I, I ran a school at the end of our time, but uh, I, my day was spent uh, enjoying being with the girls, finding time with friends once I got them to school, mm. staying close to a phone or being able to be contacted in some way in case something happened with Lily. But I made good friends. And in the evenings after we would, we, Fred and I would take care of Lily's medical issues, we had friends too, couples that we enjoyed getting together with from all over the world. And there were wonderful restaurants. Tokyo's incredible. If you haven't heard me say that enough in, <laughs> in this conversation, Tokyo is one of the most amazing cities ever. And we would- And you've traveled. Yeah, and, right. And we would go out to dinner with our friends or go out to dinner, the two of us. And so we tried to stay connected as much as we possibly could during those seven You didn't try, you did stay connected and you made ways to stay connected. It, it, in the book I describe, it was hard. 
I would spend the summers in the States and Fred had to go back and run the Pacific Division for Northwest in Japan. Mm -hmm. So we were apart a lot. And later on, I had a cell phone, so that made it easier. I, I was staying at my parents. They live in Minnesota, so he could easily call me in Minnesota. But we spent a lot of time apart. Fred would fly in for the surgery. He, we would be connected to make sure both of us understood what the situation was with Lily. He and I had prepared the surgery together, understanding what we were up for, what Lily was up for. How could we take care of Emma during the time in the summers? We signed her up for camp, but you're right. Lily didn't go to camp. Summer camps were off, off the table. And then Fred would fly in at the end of the summer, help us pack everything up, go back to L.A. if we had to have another operation or check in with doctors or whatever, whatever had to happen. We'd do that together. And then we would have another nine months back in Tokyo trying to have a life while managing on a daily basis the medical issues that had to happen with Lily. So, so, a couple, so I'm hearing one thing is that you had this family vision that you and your husband were diehard to, to complete or to have. And at the second, same time, I'm wondering, because from the families that I talk to, and um, is that there's so much exhaustion that a lot of people don't find a way to go out and have dates or to go out and take little the little trips that they've always wanted to take they're just too exhausted so where i haven't heard you say the word exhaustion i, I mean what how did that where does that fit into this so yes what we tried to do was to go out once a week, Friday nights, probably, I can't remember, but surely on the weekend. And what I, what I did was try and manage every piece of our life so that when we were done with Lily's medical issues and they became more intrusive in our life, the more she became her body began to function like the rest of us. And, and that's a complicated medical thing to describe, but so I'll, I'll try a piece of it. In order for her to go to the bathroom with the colostomy closed, she didn't have a bag on her belly anymore and she didn't have tubes anymore. In order to go to the bathroom by age five, when these surgeries were complete, she had to do a special kind of enema. She had a hole in her belly button, again called a stoma, an ace. There are all kinds of ways to describe exactly the medical term, but it's a hole in her belly button that another, she would stick a tube in, just used for this procedure, and put various kinds of liquids through the tube, the tube connected to the top of the colon. And so it emptied out through her, again, like anybody else, but it started the movement of the stool right away 
with the help of these solutions. It's a soapy solution, or there are multiple ways in which people who have Lily's condition use the solutions to empty their bowel. But we had to have that done by the time we would go out to dinner. So Fred and I knew that this had to be complete. And once it was done, then you put Lily to bed and you could have a babysitter. So our life was put into these brackets of the girls went to school like other people so long as I could have this um, young woman come and take care of Lily during the day. In the evening, we so long as we had taken care of this medical procedure, enema, which took up to an hour, hour and a half sometimes, mm -hmm. until the stool was done coming out. It's not like anyone else. However, she looks like everyone else because no one can see a hole in your belly button. And then uh, a babysitter would come and we felt like we were everyone else. Mm. And felt like we had a chance to go out and enjoy ourselves. And we knew medically nothing would happen with Lily because it, it was taken care of for the night. We also knew that there was a, a babysitter there who knew her condition. We would never expect nor want the babysitter to do anything related to taking care of her medical issues. However, they were a phone call away and so were we. So we knew we could go to a restaurant. We could knew we could enjoy our time out for two hours <laughs> and get away. And it, it felt good. To your point though, and I think it's important to say this, other women who were expatriates with children just like ours in the same school as ours, the women had women's groups and they would go on vacations, trips around Asia. I didn't do that. I didn't go further than two hours away. I would never leave Lily further than two hours. Uh, meaning I was out to dinner, I was 15 minutes away. <laughs> but I, I would not leave her, Fred and I wouldn't leave her alone for longer than that without somebody who knew her medical issues, that which was Fred and me who could really oversee even though we felt like she could just go to sleep like anyone else at night, that doesn't mean the worry ends. So there were a lot of opportunities that I watched other expatriates have that I never got to do. And when we traveled as a family, because I said that and it's true, and we did multiple times, we took an entire bag of medical uh, paraphernalia with us that that would make it so Lily could be Lily and and go on the Great Wall of China, but we had to have medical procedures every night, and therefore that was a part of our trip. So people would talk about the fancy dinners that they did or the exciting trips they did. We had to be home every single night. Lily had to have medical procedures wherever we were in the world. So yes, it felt like if I let myself, I felt cheated. <laughs> I felt it was unfair. I felt like part of my life had been taken away, but I didn't let myself go there very often because that would be so traumatic and dramatic that I knew I didn't want that. 
So this in this interview could go on for quite a long time, but it's just but I got to ask you though. So when when we when we're dealing with grief, we want to be able to process it, which means we need to let the emotions out, and at the same time, sometimes it's like ongoing grief. And so how do you actually deal with the grief when, even though she's doing really well, she's alive, she's got like, she's going to school, she's still medically very complicated and I don't know, fragile is the word, but there's still like grief and terror, I would think about like, what's you know what could possibly happen and even about you know what she's missing out in life you are you're absolutely correct there is grief there's loss there's sadness there's questions of what happened to my life where did i go during this how could this possibly have happened to us. And I know a lot of people ask that question when they're in our situation. How can I get back my identity, who I was? How can I put a label on what's happened to us so I can hang my hat, if you will, on that and always remember what, what I am, who I am now? That's a huge part of this process. And Lily had seven more operations after we left Tokyo. So my book is about those seven years in Japan. And after that airplane landed and we moved back to Minnesota and we started our life here, Lily had seven more operations. So even though our time in Tokyo, I had this parallel way of looking at the world with the excitement of travel and being in a foreign culture and taking care of Lily. We continued back in Minnesota to have operations and it was much harder then to be able to find the joy, if you will, mm -hmm. to find the perseverance, to find the silver lining, if you will, because it was, I live in Minnesota now, so no offense to Minnesota, but it was just Minnesota. It wasn't Tokyo. It didn't have the challenge. It had, it didn't have the complexity of life. It was taking care of a child who still needed help. And I still worried about her every single day. And she did have, as I said, seven more operations. So it it was a tough time, even after, maybe even more so when we got back, because then I really wasn't sure what to do. I, I did start a career when we got back, but I don't yeah, think... You weren't sure what to do with yourself. Correct. Exactly. Because you were, you had this, this vision that you were keeping alive in Japan, and then you come home where everything is the same, but you're forever different, not only because you lived abroad, but because you also still have a child that is ongoingly forever different. 
That's exactly right. That, and that is when I, I began to try and figure out, well, what, who am I? in the middle of all of this. So I dove into a career. I had been in education. I was an educator. I had a master's degree in education. I le left a part of that field and became a fundraiser. And so I dove into a career kind of haphazardly not knowing what I was doing and became a fundraiser for schools. So I raised millions of dollars for schools, and then I raised millions of dollars for other organizations that I was a volunteer for, and I thought that was enough. I was recognized for what I did. These were incredible amounts of funds. Buildings were being built because of the work that I was doing, and wonderful people were able to come to schools that couldn't come if I hadn't raised the money, there were beautiful things that were happening. And you I were was making so an impact. Proud of that, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. So mm -hmm. I felt like I came back from Japan, Lily still had issues. I jumped into a career. I didn't even know what fundraising was. I didn't know what development work was. And why would anyone do that anyway? And yet <laughs> I, I was good at it and I did it full time and was very successful. So it felt like that was the right thing to do, but it still wasn't me. It wasn't what I wanted. It didn't, it didn't create the identity I wanted to have. So in my book, Masters of Change, I don't know if, what chapter you're on, but anyway, it's, it's a process of like experimenting because you're, you were, you were in what we call liminality. You weren't who you were before and you're not who you are going to be becoming and you don't even necessarily know who you are becoming. And so you're experimenting with these different things now that you have your, you don't have the, 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 the Japan experience. That's, that's door, that chapter is finished. And you're like, so you're in this new place of, well, what, 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 What's in what's in it for me now? Exactly. And I was along the way realized that fundraising wasn't it. And it's one thing to run uh, to have an exceptional team of people that are working for you. I was running the development department at these various places and I loved the people I worked with. And it was so much fun. And we did great work together. But there was something that just told me this wasn't it. So it wasn't until we, and we moved many times during all of this. So we've, I've lived all over the world in addition to Tokyo and all over the United States and for lots of other reasons. And when we moved to Florida in 2016, my friend and I decided that it was time for me to explore what I really wanted. So I had this incredible gift from him to give me permission, if you will, not, not in the sense of uh, saying that I could do this, but supporting something yeah. I really wanted to do. And he said, Sarah, you have talked for 16 years about writing a book, go do it. I 100% support you. You're giving up a great career, but it's not what you want anyway, go for it. 
now's the time now is the time and lily still had issues when she was 16 and we still were dealing with some very complicated things but there was a window and he said do it so I did. So I took writing classes and I uh, was really involved in I, uh, in trying my best to be able to become a writer. The, the first thing I did was make a, a business card that said I'm a memoirist, a writer of memoir. And I thought, well, I just take that with me everywhere I go because I'm a writer now. That's what I do. And so it gave me a sense of purpose and identity and something to, to say, yes, Sarah, you are doing your own career your own way. You have changed your identity. It is not 100% about taking care of Lily. You're available in a career as a writer to give it up and to take care of Lily when necessary. Unlike when I had those other big time jobs, I was still trying to deal with Lily and keep my office running. This time I could drop everything mm -hmm. because I had my own business, if you will. And that's the way I like to look at it. And I was able to write a book. And it, the, the book started out as 450 pages. And you, you, those of you who get the book will be very, very glad that it is not 450 pages anymore. And it has had probably 100 revisions, which were exciting to do and to use my brain in a way that I never thought I would. I wasn't a writer. My degree in college nor graduate school had nothing to do with writing. And so this thrill of finally being able to do something I'd wanted to do. Why did you want to be a writer? So it was, it's Lily's story that was the motivator. Okay. I, when Emma was born in 1997, I decided that I would write a, a, buy a calendar and every single day for her first year of life, write something that she did or we did or that was fun or funny or something. So I did that for her and I thought for Lily, I'll do exactly the same thing. Well, obviously, <laughs> when you're born the way she was born, it became a medical report. I There were many, many days that were fun, but the book was more about dates, and times and doctors and medical procedures and how I dealt with each of them, how Fred That's and the I- That's the part I wanna know about. Yeah. So there were books and books and books or notebooks that I tossed in the corner. And that, that wasn't just a year of writing, that was years and years and years of writing. And I saved all of the medical devices that we used on Lily, a colostomy bag and the cast that she'd had to have on her arm. and all the different thing, tools that we use to keep her alive and to help her function. And I put them in boxes and put them away and put them in storage and moved them around the country as we moved around the country. And that was the, the impetus was Fred saying, take out all those boxes. There's a story. You've been talking about it. Because I said all the time, I think it's a great story. I think it'd be interesting. I think I should write it. And finally, in, in some ways, it was sort of like, okay, Sarah, take the challenge. 
do it. It's as you say in your book, it's important to kind of figure out what you want to do, narrow it down and, and a little bit of a leap of faith that you can make this happen messy as it might be, 450 pages as it might be, you can do it. And then you, what I did was refine and refine and rewrite and rewrite and edit and hired an editor who could help me edit and and on and on and on. It took seven years to write the book, not because it took seven years to write the book, but because I'm constantly dealing with medical issues related to Lily and things that happened and issues we had to address. And there's Emma in there too, who is this delightful, wonderful, amazing human being who of course needed as much of my attention as she did, Lily did. So you told me before we jumped on and we got to start to wrap it up, but I don't want to miss out on any of this either, is that it was during the, it was through writing this book where you actually sort of went through a personal transformation and, and created this new identity that now you're in. Is that like I think, what happened? I think that's accurate. That's the way I like to look at my life, I guess, is that the moment that we heard there was something wrong with our baby, our lives changed forever. I then made it my life's mission to make it so that both of our daughters would have the best life possible, which meant I couldn't. It meant that my focus of everything was about them, not about me. And ultimately that I, once we came back to the, to Minnesota, that I took a career path that I wouldn't necessarily have taken, but it fit and it worked. And, and the heads of school I worked for were kind to let me take time off when Lily was, there was an issue or Emma as well, but it was never what I wanted to do. And so I feel incredibly lucky that I have a husband who's so supportive of me, listened to me, yeah. understood that there was something inside of me, even though it was a leap to, to become a writer, something I had no idea how to do or where to begin, that one day I just sat down and started writing and discovered the thrill of writing. You, you have this story that you kind of throw onto the page and then to be able to craft a, a chapter and down to a paragraph and then down to a sentence and down to the word and then to make sure each of the words when they're strung together create a story a reader would want to read. Mm -hmm. This isn't a book for me. It's not cathartic or therapeutic. It's something I wanted to do for readers. And in some ways, maybe it took me 14 years, 16 years before I started writing to realize it's not a book for me. It's a book for people to read, to understand the struggles, the life, the excitement, the happiness, the worry, the stress, the fear, the anger that one person can go through as you're trying to save your daughter's life and save your family. So what's the title of the book? So the book is called Journey to Japan, A Life-Saving Memoir. Wow. By Sarah 
Deschamps. It's Say it spelled, again. Deschamps. It's spelled D-E-S-C-H-A-M-P-S. And you can, you, I have a website. You can find me there at Sarah Deschamps, D-E-S-C-H-A-M-P-S.com. So you can find the book there and information about me and all that good stuff there. And we're going to also have that in the show notes. So, be, but before we jump off, what are two or three takeaways that your book and your story and your journey and your family's journey have for the world? For families like you, but maybe even more importantly for families who don't have a clue. I think the most important piece of this is that the trauma doesn't ever go away. It lessens. It sometimes it feels like you can begin to have your own life and do your own thing. But when you have a child who has a catastrophic medical diagnosis, this will be a part of your life forever. Lily's now 23 and we're still helping her. She's great, she's wonderful. If you saw her, you would think she's the most amazing human being, which I do. But she is a huge, she ha has still a medical need every day of her life that she manages on her own. But the trauma I felt doesn't go away. And maybe it's better to say the stress is always there. The worry is always there. So if you know a family who has some kind of catastrophic medical diagnosis, know that even though they have a smile on their face, and even though they're out for dinner, and even though they're enjoying a vacation, this will always be in the back of their mind. At least I can speak for myself. It is in mind all of the time. The other thing I would say that I think has really been an important part of my life is we always have tried to have something that is good, that is different, that is a challenge, an adventure, something that we, and I mean Fred and me, although Emma and Lily for years and years were included in that, now they're grown adults, um, so that we have something to look forward to. And sometimes it's as simple as going to have a glass of wine or a walk around the block, or sometimes it's an adventure to go travel. And we try always to have something like that. Several times we've had to cancel them or skip the walk or cancel the reservation or can't go to someone's house for dinner for various reasons, but to have it as something to look forward to has been a huge part of grounding me and giving me the, the, the strength or the wherewithal to keep going every day in life. So to have something to look forward to that's apart from your everyday, I'm not gonna say mundane, but your everyday experience of, of your of, of your struggle to have something enjoyable because they're and and to basically fight to make sure that happens and that even though it didn't happen you had to cancel this time and that time 
you need friends that understand that you you've got to be able to cancel and it's not about them and they should continue to like make plans with you things and like that maybe the third one you've just touched on and that is that even though you constantly have trauma and even though you're trying but canceling a few things but trying to have fun friends and family are critical and I did not know that during the first seven years when we lived in Japan I in fact shoved family away tried to keep them out I didn't want them to know how hard how bad how difficult I did have a smile on my face and when I told friends that I couldn't travel with them to various fun places around Asia I would say just because that's not something I can do I didn't cry I didn't say why I I, and very few people, I think, truly understand, stood the complexity of our situation and the, the medical daily need we had. But I moved back to Minnesota um, two years ago, and my friends are here. Our family is here. Fred and I have family and friends here, and that is the most important gift that I could possibly have is to see them and talk to them and they have known what happened and now I've told the full story especially if they've read my book and they know what what we went through and they love us and care for us and embrace us as who we are and that is a an incredible thing to have in our life now and a lesson I've learned but only really recently to let people in that's a big one and and i think it has to be selectively let who you let in but definitely to selectively let some people in some I, I, people is actually very not not necessary is better not to i i tell people would you like the facebook version of my life or would you like the real version of my life so if you see me on Facebook, you'll know there's a difference underlying what I actually post on Facebook, as I know for most of us, that's the case. Well, Sarah, this has been absolutely fascinating, and I can't wait to read your book. How can people find you online, and are, are do you, I don't actually know what you do for a living. Are you still writing, or are you like a coach, or... Yes. Do so, people find you to pay you to help them? <laughs> yes, all of the above. So I am, I, I, I am continuing to, to write. The second book has been started. I hope to have it finished in the next um, year, let's say. So I hope that that book is finished. And it starts the moment the first book ends meaning when we fly back to Minnesota after seven years in Japan. So I still say I'm a writer proudly and have written several short pieces that I hope to have published, but I, I truly believe in what I'm doing and I'm excited and thrilled to be a writer and to support other writers. Yes, I have some done some editing for other people and I'm proud when people ask me. I'm in a writing group and I work with the, the pieces that all of us have written. And it's a, a thrill to be able to read other people's work and for them to listen and um, for them to support me as well in my in my mm -hmm. writing. 
So that's where I currently am spending my time and excited to be able to continue with this writing process. And people can find me at saradeschamps.com is the very best way. And again, it's my last name is crazy. It's D as in David, E-S. C-H-A-M-P-S. And I know Julie will have this posted later, but but that's how you can find me, saradeschamps.com. I will look forward to hearing from anyone. It will be so much fun to hear your own stories and to connect. Thank you for this opportunity, Julie. This has been absolutely wonderful. Well, this has, thank you for, for sharing and for showing that there is a model way to keep your family intact, keep your kids, you know, as much in the normal life as possible. And you, you still didn't give us the um, answer for like how you weren't, how you dealt with exhaustion. You never again said that word, but we'll leave that. I'll just, I'll just take that as a no, not going to go there. <laughs> Well, maybe there was exhaustion every single day. Maybe that's a part of life. And and maybe I just accepted it as that's the way it's going to be. So long as you can wake up the next morning and go have a good day. I, I think, of course, exhaustion is a, a, a huge part of what my life has had had become the moment that she was born, Lily was born, and continued. Of course, that's a huge part of it. But maybe, maybe I try and be glasses half full and don't want to talk about it so much. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, you talk. You talked about how you just kept your. You had this vision that just kept you going. That's right. That yeah. that's why I try and live every day that way. Doesn't always work. And you'll see in the book that it's, it's life is extremely complicated with a child like this and a family you want to keep together. But I try and wake up every day to, to, to be as positive as I can and to listen to what my friends say and get support from family now as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you. And this has been Julie Brown on Bold Becoming. Hey there. The value that you got from this today, take it into your heart. Add value to it in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others. And make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one -on -one coaching 
or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers. The link's in the show notes.